Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious." In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. What a wonderful passage. It's so great to be able to routinely revisit important passages of Scripture such as this. If you were here three years ago, you may remember we preached on this exact passage, and that's not a coincidence. Uh, The reading schedule that we follow in our church is a three-year cycle, and that three-year cycle uh, chooses different portions of Scripture for the specific holidays or seasons within the church calendar, and those portions of Scripture are chosen because they embody or highlight or contain uh, clear and explicit doctrine about or concerning what that season emphasizes. And so just as we saw last week in Isaiah 2, a vision and a prophecy concerning the mountain of the house of the Lord, uh, now we are going to exposit, read through, study Isaiah 11, a prophecy concerning how God will actually restore what was lost in the people of Israel. You may remember from last week, we we described Isaiah's ministry as one of declaring judgment. Isaiah was prophesying over the people of Israel and Judah, the two different parts of the kingdom, that they were about to be removed. 
and the removal of those parts of the nation was such that it had not yet come to pass. Although now when we read Isaiah, it's extremely clear. At first, when Isaiah is prophesying judgment and destruction, the people are somewhat unaware as to the timing of the events. And so Isaiah actually prophesies about the Assyrian uh, exile way before it happens. Now, now that we're at this point in the timeline, understanding perfectly the, the meaning, we can see that this prophecy although somewhat fulfilled in the return from exile, was not fully fulfilled until Christ and in Christ. So as we look at each of these prophecies, we're learning how Isaiah, by the Holy Spirit, is actually testifying about Christ, not just about something that was going to take place a few hundred years after the the giving of this prophecy. And so to that end, I want to review the context of Isaiah chapter 11 being the message of Isaiah and his judgments and woes that he pronounced on the people, specifically the oppressors of the people, as we saw two weeks ago in Jeremiah chapter 23, that God was coming to strike the shepherds. He says, because you have not attended to the people, because you have not attended to the things of the Lord, therefore I will attend to you. God is doing the exact same thing here. Isaiah is unleashing woes, pronouncement of judgment against those who are the leaders of Israel. After looking at the context that takes place before Isaiah chapter 11 begins, we're then going to look at God's restoration of his people. That is to say, God received or returned a remnant to the people, which he himself persevered. It is a mistake to think that throughout Israel's history, the remnant follow God's laws of their own accord. Just as you heard potentially in the Sunday school hour, the understanding of doing the law being a faith-filled response to God, so also when we read the history of Israel and we see from time to time a remnant that is preserved, you you have to understand that it is God himself who is causing that remnant to persevere. This is extremely important and applicable even to us today because it is the exact same doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That is to say, those who do persevere in the faith are persevered by God. They are saved by God. They do not persevere themselves. It is important to understand they cooperate with the grace of God, but it is not based on their own motive, effort, or merit. It is based on God's preservation. And that comes into unique and sharp focus here as we look at the context of Isaiah's prophecy and judgment of burning. After looking at how God perseveres the stump who is Christ, we will then look at how his reign and kingdom will be made manifest. Isaiah says that there will come a branch from the root of Jesse. And we saw two weeks ago how the root of Jesse was also the cause of Jesse. That is to say, Christ is the son of David. That is, he comes after David in lineage and is the fulfillment of all God's promises to King David, as we've studied so often here at this church. But he is also the very foundation for David. That is to say that David in Psalm 110 is seeing a vision of the Lord, and yet he sees a vision of the Lord speaking to another one who he calls Lord. And that other one who he calls Lord is David's son. And yet David's son came before David. And so we understand that this is no mere human king. This is no mere 
a coincidence or circumstance. In the long line of failing kings, it isn't as if one just happens to get it right. There is one who comes, and he himself is the very root of the people of God. And so looking at his kingdom, therefore, we will see how this accords with, it accompanies, and is the context for the gospel. Christ's kingdom, although although it was foreshadowed by military kingdoms and geopolitical kingdoms, it is not only a kingdom over nations, it also is a kingdom over the spiritual realm. And so we're going to unpack this wonderful poetry that Isaiah presents concerning Christ as this new Adam. And then finally, we're going to see what it means for us to accept his kingdom, to submit to his reign, and how that plays out in our lives. It is not enough to know that Christ is king now. You have to submit to his kingdom now. And that really is the fruit of the gospel, a heart that is submitted to him. So at the very beginning of the book of Isaiah, we see a prophecy of judgment. And the prophecy of judgment that Isaiah gives over and over again takes the imagery of fire. God has a controversy that he is intending to settle with the leaders, and he settles this controversy because they have oppressed other nations. God says that Israel and Judah have become like Sodom. And the sin of Sodom, although we understand from the story, was sodomy, the the activity which derives its name from the particular iniquity of homosexual sex that was taking place in that city, That is not the chief sin for which they are judged. In fact, God says that Sodom was judged because it had fullness of bread and was lazy and oppressed the poor. That comes as quite a shock to us when we understand what the fruit or the the physical manifestation of that sin was. And yet God considers the things of justice equally as important to as their sin. From the story with Abraham and Lot, The manifestation of the judgment is sodomy, and yet God also indicts them of a serious matter that is the oppression of the poor, the devouring of those who have nothing to begin with. God judges them for idleness. That is to say they were idle, they were slothful, they were were apathetic towards the matters of life and righteousness. They were pleased by and satisfied by the things of material material goods and possessions. And so Israel and Judah have played the harlot. They have become exactly like Sodom, and they have adopted this same strategy. That is, they were content with the blessings of God in material matters alone, and they were all too eager to neglect those things which were weighty matters of the law, mercy and and sacrifice. Isaiah therefore prophesies judgment on those who who write iniquitous decrees. And these iniquitous decrees in the prior chapter at the beginning of Isaiah 10 are laws which are encoded, and those laws are encoded in such a way as to oppress the widow and the orphan. Isaiah uses the language of eating, and this is very important to understand, that the evil laws that were written in that day were such such as we have today, such as uh, interest laws at 30 and 40%, things like this that take place even in our city 
really every city of the country. Uh, other laws that unnecessarily burden and oppress the poor, I think taxation would be one of these laws. But the iniquitous decrees are decrees which consume and devour those who are poor. One of the major iniquitous decrees in our country today is the legalization of the murder of children by which people who are convinced that they don't have enough money to take care of their children or enough time or their children will be too, ne too unnecessary of a burden are permitted by the state to murder their children for the sake of convenience such that it makes these children as Isaiah 10, 1 through 4 says, it calls them orphans and it calls them the fruit of widows. And so God is, he has a controversy against those who write iniquitous decrees. Isaiah pronounces a woe to those who write such laws, who allow for a context in which the poor, the widow, and the orphan are oppressed and devoured by the rich. These leaders of Israel are governmental and religious leaders. There was a mention earlier in the Sunday School Hour about the notion of the separation of church and state and how that in the modern era, that's a, a mentality that we're accustomed to. But in the nation of Israel, religious leaders and governmental leaders were always hand in hand. We see this routinely throughout the nation. David, for example, is a king, and yet he establishes the house of David, the tabernacle of David, in which he installs worshipers. And he, used states, he uses state funds, uh, gold, silver, etc., food, to fund the establishment of the tabernacle of David. There's no division in the land of Israel between religion and government, because everything is a government. The church is a government, in a sense. It is a government over spiritual matters. She is able to decide who is a member and not a member through spiritual discipline, through, through uh, the actual judging of those who are false professors to be removed from the church. It, there is a realm in which religion is a government. Likewise, government is inescapably religious. Now, this is outside of our context for today, for the message. We don't have time to probe every application or implication. Nevertheless, these are not just governmental leaders who are writing secular laws or laws that are not religious in nature. They are religious in nature. They can be moral or immoral. So it is not as, it is not as if the governmental leaders just get together and all vote and approve the matter, and therefore the matter is pleasing to God and and. Uh, full of justice. Again, laws in our country exist like this. For example, the legalization of murder, not through a particular law that was written, but through the interpretation and usurpation of authority, which was not given to the Supreme Court. Through that action, they have created a context in which this uh, terrible abomination of abortion is taking place in. Now, this is an iniquitous decree, even though it is not an actual law, and it is a spiritual opinion that the Supreme Court has handed down. It is not just a natural thing. It is not just a civic realm issue. It is deeply and inescapably religious. Therefore, God says, concerning this context at this time, that he will settle the controversy with the leaders of Israel. God judges them for their wicked rulers, and even his, 
instrument of judgment, Assyria, is eventually judged as well. You see, God has righteous judgment, and his righteous judgment, his wrath against sin, being perfect, is perfectly to be expressed. Assyria, however, although she was commissioned by God to judge Judah and Israel, went too far. Assyria took it to the realm of total destruction, and God had desired that a small remnant remain. And the king of Assyria, as we see in chapter 10, actually begins to utter the same things that Nebuchadnezzar uttered. When Neb- if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar walks around the city and he says, my might and the strength of my hand have accomplished this. The very same words come out of the king of Assyria's mouth, saying that he is the reason for his conquest. Earlier in the Sunday school hour, there was a mention of how God judges based on the accordance to or the disobedience of his law. And one of the aspects of God's law was a spirit of thankfulness, a spirit of thanksgiving, uh, recognizing that whatever God has given you was given to you from heaven, that it wasn't simply the byproduct of your wisdom and might. And yet both Nebuchadnezzar and the king of Assyria utter the exact same thing, which is the antithesis of God's commandment to recognize him in thanksgiving. And so the king of Assyria, being bent on destruction, will also be judged. Now that is a wonderful message for those who are in a nation that is expecting exile and judgment. It is a wonderful thing to know that God will not let his judgments go too far. He will rein them in. Nevertheless, the land will be burned. Even though the judgment had not yet taken place, even though Isaiah is prophesying about these things in the future, there is no relenting. God is set on judgment. The reason that God is set on judgment is that time and again, he has warned his people and they have persisted in their rebellion for hundreds of years through multiple kings, and they are persistent in their rebellion against him. If they would turn, he would relent, but alas, they will not Uh, turn. So uh, Isaiah sees the nation as a place over which there will be a burning. This is very important in understanding Isaiah 11. Isaiah prophesies that there will be a burning of the country and that its cities will be burned with fire. They will be removed with fire. Yahweh is going to send upon the people a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. Now, I don't know about you, that does not sound like a spirit I want to receive. Now, I believe in a way this is actually speaking of the effect of the Holy Spirit in that God's burning of the land, which was right to be burned, was a cleansing burning. That is to say, it removed those things which cannot remain so that he might appear and return to his people. The fire comes on the people for this reason, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. The burning which takes place, this language that Isaiah is using, is a fire and a fire of cleansing. It is not simply a fire that will leave the land completely to waste. It is a fire that is resetting things. Coincidentally, I happened to watch a movie last night that was actually a pretty good treatment of the old movie, The Jungle Book. And The Jungle Book, if you aren't familiar with the story, is a story about a man who, a boy actually, who through tragedy 
is exiled into the jungle and the wilderness. And he lives and grows up among the beasts of the jungle. And at some point, there is a controversy between him and the king of the jungle, so to speak, this tiger. And through the final scenes of of the movie, both the cartoon version that you may be familiar with, as well as the new version, which I just watched last night, um, there is an action that the man does. And the the man boy, uh, you know, eventually grows up and obtains fire. At this point in the story, the entire wilderness is dry and it's about to be burned. And so to defeat this tiger, the, the man cub goes into the human village and brings with him fire so that he can defeat the tiger. And as he comes back to the, uh, the, fi- uh, the, the wilderness or the jungle, which is already dry and ready to burn, he uses this fire to try to defeat the tiger, but at the same time catches the entire wilderness and jungle on fire. And this, I, I bring this up because it's an illustration of the cleansing nature of fire that everything in God's people was ready to burn and ought to have been burned. And yet, through the fire, there was a good outcome that God defeated his enemy. This is exactly what is taking place. Not only is God defeating his enemy, but he has left something in the forest which is not going to be completely burned. This cleansing fire will consume the entire land. And although all the people are guilty, all the people of God, the seed of God's people is not guilty and therefore is not burned. In the commissioning of Isaiah, Yahweh tells how he will overcome their iniquity. In Isaiah chapter 6, as we've looked through this theme of Isaiah talking about a fire, he says, although a tenth or a tithe remains in the land, escaping the fire, it will be burned again. This is Isaiah saying, the fire will leave nothing behind it will purify the place. He says, like a terebinth or an oak, a terebinth is a really big tree. It kind of looks like a locust tree if you've ever seen one of those, but it's much bigger. I mean, the trunks can be 10 feet across. It's a, it's a mighty tree which is able to escape fire. He says, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is in its stump or is its stump. The point is this, that God had prophesied through Isaiah that this fire would cleanse the people, and yet this fire will retain. It will not be able to touch or destroy or hinder in the least the holy seed in the stump. Of course, that holy seed is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so Yahweh is telling us specifically that the holy seed and the stump are the same. The holy seed and the stump being the same, the branch or root that comes forth from that stump is also the same. And this is where we begin to understand. Christ escapes the judgment that is due to his people because he is able to take the judgment completely and yet remain alive. Not only does he come after this judgment, he's able to bring about a new transformation. We saw in Jeremiah 23, two weeks ago, that this tree which comes forth from Christ will become his kingdom. That is to say that Christ is the embodiment of his kingdom, and that is the context for the nations to come and find rest under its branches, to find shade and rest in its branches. 
Though everything in Israel is worthy of being cut down, God has brought about his promises in Christ. You see, when God was promising to Abraham, he was only promising to Abraham, understanding that Abraham was in Christ. Abraham, David, Moses, Noah, none of them, although they were perfect, were able to receive the promises based on their own action. The promises of God are given to those who are in Christ not to those who are outside of Christ on their own merit. We know this clearly from Paul's dealing with Abraham in the book of Galatians. He says that Abraham considered it, uh, considered God's promises as able to be fulfilled by God. He considered them according to faith, and that is how they are considered to be in Christ. Everything in the nation was worthy of judgment, yet the one thing, the very foundation of the nation itself, Christ himself, is able to remain and able to come about. This is really a picture of resurrection, is it not? The entire land is ready to be burned. The entire trees of the forest, the cedars of Lebanon, the things which make up the temple itself are ready to be burned, and yet there is a stump that will send forth a branch. If you ever have to take out a tree, I would encourage you to take it out completely. I have learned this story so many times in my yard. I I give thanks to God when I actually remember the point of this, yet often I am just simply frustrated. I have a a tree root that that has left my neighbor's yard and has come into my fence, and it's poking out my fence into my yard, and every year I go by and I trim off the branches but I never deal with the root. Of course, here, no one can deal with the root, for the root is Christ, and even though he die, he is raised again and is the foundation for God's renewal. This is a message of the gospel that Christ is able to come and restore that which is ready to be burned and ought to be burned. Isaiah says that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That is, this stump will not remain dormant. It is not a seed that will be just coincidental or a seed that will go into the earth and die and not bear any fruit. It is a seed which will bear fruit. It is a stump which will produce a branch. There will be a manifestation of God's righteousness. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And then Isaiah goes on to describe this sevenfold spirit. Isaiah describes it as the spirit of the Lord, that's one. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, that's two and three. The spirit of counsel and might, four and five. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, six and seven. Isaiah describes Christ as the one who has, and rightly so, the sevenfold spirit of God. This happened in time after his baptism. The Spirit of the Lord descends upon Christ, and Matthew says that it descended in the form of a dove and remained. It is not as if all the other patriarchs and prophets and kings of old, like, for example, David, who was anointed by the Spirit and yet goes on to commit iniquity and ruins his kingdom and the people in the process. This one, this righteous branch from the shoot of Jesse, Uh, He is the one who will receive the Spirit of God, and that Spirit of God will be pleased to remain. That is to say, Christ is worthy of being anointed with the Holy Spirit of God. He is the one who is able to receive the Spirit and live in and operate in the Spirit. In his ministry, Jesus operated in the Spirit of the Lord for the deliverance of the people, not simply 
as a sign to them, but also a testimony about his father and the gospel that he was preaching, that God's kingdom was coming. After his ascension, John hears Christ's self-description in the book of Revelation as the one who walks among the seven lampstands and the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God. This is none other than Christ. No one other than Christ could fulfill Isaiah's vision and prophecy. Again, describing Christ, Isaiah says, His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. This is speaking of Jesus' wisdom in his ministry and the disputes with the Pharisees. In every word, motive, and action, Jesus Christ perfectly executed them considering the fear of the Lord. This is why Christ is such a sweet savor for us. Can you imagine what it would be like to do this? It is impossible. It is absolutely impossible for we are creatures acquainted with sin. We are creatures who have been perverted by sin. Even though we are new creations in Christ, the New Testament speaks of an ongoing battle between the old man and the new man, by which in faith in God, we ought to be killing the old man. Nevertheless, I can testify, and I'm sure you can testify in a moment of honesty to yourself, how quickly the old man is able to, be, to come to the surface. I was doing something yesterday, and I stubbed my toe and instantly was moved to what might be described only accurately as a murderous rage from stubbing my toe. You see, Christ is seen by Isaiah as one who is filled with the fear of the Lord. That is, his mode of operation, his activity, the way he thinks, the way he considers that which he is to do, that which he says, all of it is executed according to the fear of God. This is wonderful, and this is wonderfully sweet for those who recognize their deep need and lack of purity. In every dispute that Christ has with the scribes and with the Pharisees, he not only executes it in the fear of the Lord, but he maintains the right understanding of who is the arbiter of truth. When he disputes with the Pharisees and the scribes in their estimation of the law, he does not receive their testimony concerning their own righteousness, nor does he adopt their understanding of what the law is supposed to do. He does not allow the doctrine that was handed to him by the Father to be perverted. That is to say, he fulfills Isaiah's vision completely. He does not decide disputes based on what he hears with his ears. In fact, John uh, gives us a little taste of this, that when they were attempting to take Christ by force and to install him as king, John gives a summary statement saying that Christ entrusted himself not to any man, for he knew what it was in man. Likewise, he did not need any man to testify because Christ has perfect doctrine of sin and of man. That is to say, Christ in his ministry knew perfectly well what he was doing. That is, he saw forward to those who would be gathered in through his work, and he saw their deep need, understanding that all men are tainted by sin. Christ did not entrust himself. Christ did not need to hear from anyone. He knew completely that his father's testimony was true. His reign that is inaugurated in the incarnation, which we are going to be celebrating in just a few weeks from now, was fully manifested in the ascension. 
I want you to understand this clearly. The New Testament says Christ is reigning now. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has a description of Christ's second coming. And most Christians alive today, especially in America, think that Christ will return to establish his reign. They think that Christ will literally come to the Jerusalem in the nation state of Israel, although it has nothing to do, there is no continuity of of culture or line there. That's a matter for another time. But they think that Christ is coming to establish his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, Christ's opening words at the presentation of the gospel, the very words that he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Things that are at hand are not far away from you. They're within your grasp. That's the definition of your hand being connected to your wrist, being connected to your forearm and shoulder. It is here. He says the kingdom is is here. He says the kingdom is in your midst. He then goes on to testify saying, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God or by the finger of God, then know that the kingdom of God has come among you. And the very first miracle that he does in Mark chapter one is to cast out a spirit. And so Christ is not waiting to establish his kingdom. Although we do not yet see his kingdom fully in in a manifest sense, his kingdom is established. Christ is reigning now. And that reign was fully culminated in the ascension. Again, Paul's vision of the return of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15 is not that Christ comes to establish his kingdom, but in 1 Corinthians 15, at the second coming, Christ hands the kingdom over to the Father because Christ is wielding authority for that specific purpose, to mature the kingdom in that it would be a right gift to give to the Father. And so we understand that this kingdom spoken of by Isaiah is here and it is coming ever quickly and ever clearly. Therefore, Christ rules not only over the nations of men, which is often emphasized in this church, but he also rules and reigns over the spiritual realm. There is no demon power or satanic force which is stronger than Christ. There is no political theory or doctrine of men or philosophy which is stronger than the doctrine of Christ. That is to say, Christ is able to save to the utmost, and he is the chief and pinnacle. He is the capstone of faith. Christ being reigning over the nations, he wields them to his intended purpose, but also he wields his authority and gospel over the spiritual matters of life. The reason I say this is because it's helpful to understand these in the light of Isaiah's prophecy. There is a twofold understanding of each of these verses. Isaiah 11:4, he says, but with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Does this ring a bell? If you've heard the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, we'll see it in just a second. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. You see, this passage is intended to show us the glory of Christ. If Christ ruled over geopolitical matters alone, it would be wonderful and amazing. And yet it is not limited to that, but has a twofold understanding here. He not only takes up the cause of the lowly, that is the meek, but he gives them eternal life. Here he says, he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. 
That is to say that there is a spiritual sense to understand these words. He not only judges the poor, that is, delivers the poor from their oppression, but he also recognizes and deals with those who have an understanding of their spiritual poverty. In Matthew 5 and verse 3 and verse 6, we see Christ saying, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see, Christ not only wields authority politically, but he also wields authority over the spiritual realm. That is to say, Christ is active in the spiritual realm. For those who are delivered, they are delivered by Christ himself, by the Holy Spirit. Christ is even now striking the nations with his word. In Psalm 2, we see the psalmist have a vision of the one who is the anointed one of Yahweh, and the anointed one who wields authority, breaks the nations who reject his rule with a rod of iron. And he absolutely does that. But he not only breaks the nations, he also breaks those who are stone cold in heart. He breaks them, and his word, described by Isaiah as the rod of his mouth, is also described in the scriptures as the sword that proceeds out of his mouth. That sword cuts every man and exposes his iniquity and need for a new heart. This is what Jeremiah says in the New Covenant, that no longer will you have a heart of flesh, or sorry, a heart of stone, but I will put within you a heart of flesh. There is a holy transplant that is taking place. Christ is not only the wonderful shepherd, he also is the chief doctor. That is to say that Christ removes the heart of stone, and causes the the patient, so to speak, to come back to life and puts within them a heart of flesh. This is describing nothing other than conversion. By his breath, that is the spirit of God, Christ slays those who are dead in spirit. Now this is intended poetically, that is to say all men are walking around as dead men. And he slays them in a sense, causing them to to become, as Paul says, dead to sin. Before we come to Christ, we are already dead in sin. Christ comes and restores those who are caught in sin, gives them new life, and raises them up in his resurrection. If you've ever seen the movie The Chronicles of Narnia, you may remember after Aslan dies on the stone table, uh, he then comes to life. And he says to Lucy and to Queen Susan that he is there because the the witch, that is the enemy, forgot the deeper magic. And that deeper magic, Lewis is, is saying, is an allegory of righteousness and God's justice. That is to say that Aslan did not deserve to die. And because he took on the punishment of another, he was able to come back to life. What does Aslan do when he comes to rally an army to finally defeat the evil one? He breathes on them and they turn from stone back to life. If you've never seen that movie, I would encourage you, read the book first, then see the movie if you're really wanting to. The point is, it's an allegory. It's describing exactly what is taking place here. Christ who receives the Spirit in Isaiah verse 11-2, the one who receives the Spirit breathes that same Spirit on his disciples, literally in John 14, and then goes on to commission that Spirit to come in the day of Pentecost. 
This is all done in order that Christ's glory would be made manifest in our deep need for the gospel. Now we're going to turn briefly to an understanding of this poem that Isaiah brings about, describing Christ as this new Adam. Whereas Adam, in time past, gives names to the animal, he also unleashed sin and death to the entire world. That antipathy comes upon the entire creation and spreads to all creatures. Nevertheless, Isaiah sees the peace of the Messiah, this reign of the shoot of Jesse, uh, as one who's bringing about a transformation and a peace. Christ is seen in this passage as both the last Adam and the chief shepherd. I want you to see these two elements at play. Christ is reigning over these animals, and these animals are tamed. They are pacified, if you will. This is to be understood in a spiritual matter alone. It is not as if before the second coming, all the animals in the world will stop eating each other. That is not what postmillennialism nor Isaiah, uh, which it, you know gave rise to postmillennialism, is intending to convey. These are poet, poetic words. These are spiritual words, but they are deeply important to you. They apply to you more than it is commonly understood at the surface. Wolves, in the first instance, are like those who persecute the lambs. He says that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. This is the reason, potentially, that I think the New Testament was written. It was written in, in one sense, obviously, to convey Christ. But if you take the book of Acts and you split it at Acts 6 or 7, everything that comes after Acts, a large percentage of it has to do with Paul. And if you've never considered Paul, I want you to consider it briefly now and give some time to meditate on it. Paul is the chief example of the, the amazing proof of the validity and efficacy, that is the effectiveness of the gospel. Paul was converted so that you would have confidence. Paul was persecuting. It said in Acts 6, Paul was there hanging out, approving of everything that was happening to Stephen. Stephen was testifying of the glory of Christ, describing how Christ was the culmination and fulfillment of all the covenant promises. And Paul is basically like, he's like taking down who was at the meeting in order to, you know, give them a gift later. He was like holding the coats at the meeting where they decided to kill Stephen. He was basically attending to the party, so to speak. Wolves can lie down with the lamb because of the power of Christ, not in staying wolves. That's important to see. The poem here totally does not work if the wolf stays a wolf, as we commonly understand wolves. What will the wolf do with the lamb after they sit down? He'll eat the lamb. Unless he is pacified, unless he is transformed in nature, he will destroy the lamb. And yet the rod of Jesse, the, the shoot which comes forth from the stump, is able to transform the wolf. Coincidentally, using this imagery totally side to the side, Douglas Wilson describes democracy as two wolves and a lamb getting together and de deciding what they'll have for dinner. <laughs> the point is that it doesn't make any sense. The wolf is going to be the wolf. Here, the wolf is not the wolf. The wolf is still, it looks like a wolf. It acts like a wolf. But Christ's transformative effect is such that the wolf is no longer recognizable by his action. He is transformed. 
Just as the leopard cannot change his spots, men who are wicked cannot do any good at all. This was Jeremiah's prophecy. When he sees, he says, can you who are acquainted with iniquity, can you do good? It's a rhetorical question in the text. But Jeremiah says it in the imagery of, can a leopard change his spots? The answer is no. The leopard stays a leopard. The leopard does not have cosmetic powers. He stays a leopard. Therefore, men who are trapped in iniquity cannot change. And yet, Isaiah says concerning that the, the leopard, he will lie down with the young goat. It's important to understand this in the sacrificial system. Young goats were the peace atonement that were given. Young goats had to be offered who were pure and spotless. Through the transforming effects of the last Adam and chief shepherd, not only does the leopard lie down, but he is also having fellowship with one who is a pure sacrifice. This is speaking, of course, of the gospel effect on sinners, that sinners can become transformed by the work of Christ, such that Paul says that they can be an acceptable and pleasing sacrifice to God. So many Christians think that they still are unpleasing to God, even though they are in Christ. Now, if you are harboring ongoing unrepentant sin, then know for sure that the Father wishes that you would be delivered of that. At the same time, however, you do not have to live as if the sword of Damocles is hanging over your head, ready to fall at any moment, that if you should sin too grievously, that Christ is not able to forgive. You can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be pleasing to the Father. With imperfect works, with imperfect obedience, yet you can be like this leopard who lives with and lies down with and has fellowship with the young goat. The bear and the lion are those who once ate the flesh of other animals, but now they graze upon grass. This is amazing. I don't know, I, I much would prefer, I know John Gray would much prefer the diet of most bears, Berries, salmon, these are wonderful things to anyone who's lived on salmon. The bear eats fish. The bear eats animals. And yet here, through the activity of this stump of Jesse, the bear and the cow are able to graze together. They're able to graze together and they're able to be among the flock. They're able to be among the herd. Notice, for example, this imagery of the bear and the lion. What did David do for the bear and the lion? He slayed them. The excellency of Christ is presented here that he not only transforms them, but he's able to keep them alive. He does not destroy them as they would need to be destroyed. Who but Christ can tame those who are once vipers? And notice clearly the New Testament presents a judgment against those who are of the party of the Pharisees and Sadducees, calling them a brood of vipers, literally the imagery that Isaiah uses. And yet in the Gospels, in both John and the book of Acts, it says that many of the party of the Pharisees came to believe. And some join even the church and are baptized. This is amazing. If you don't understand how much of a Pharisee you are, you cannot see how precious of a promise this is that even those who are considered to be snakes are able to be brought into this new paradise that is being brought about by Christ in the Spirit. This is the transformative effect of the gospel. It completely changes the world, not just in a future sense, 
It intends to show the greatness of Christ through the regeneration which is necessary. Those who come to Christ must be transformed at a heart level. They must be remade anew based on the action of Christ. Men can no more reform their character nor actions than a wolf could become a kitten. If you put a wolf and lie it down next to a lamb, it will eat the lamb unless it is transformed. Christ alone, therefore, is able to save. Isaiah not only promises a return from exile, he promises something greater than they ever had in the promised land to begin with. Finally, paradise will come. For those who have been transformed by Christ, he declares his power to protect and shepherd them. He says, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. The only expositional question you need to answer is, how do the waters cover the sea? Totally. The knowledge of the Lord will be over the earth, totally. This is the end goal of the reign of Christ, that he converts those who are his enemies and regenerates them and reforms their character. Verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. We saw two weeks ago how in Jeremiah it says that there will come nations who stream to the house of the Lord. Just as Christ sends out his disciples, likewise the nations, upon being renewed and and reformed, begin to stream to the church. And of course, this resting place is not considering the death of Christ, nor the bodily resting place of Christ being in his ascension, but rather it intends the church. That is to say, his Holy Spirit comes to rest in and dwell in the temple of his people. And that resting place will be absolutely glorious. Christ sends his disciples into the world and the nations stream to him. Likewise, at Pentecost, he gathers those who were still left behind after the first return from exile, gathers them into a new people and makes them into one family. So the question that I have for you in understanding the reign of Christ and the necessity to accept his realm and kingdom is, do you see your need for Christ? Do you see your deep need for Christ such that you have abandoned everything else in life? The scriptures are very clear that there are many snares and many traps that keep people from entering the kingdom of God. There are many things that pervert or make war against your souls. There are sins which prevent you from seeing God. There are sins that keep you dead in spirit, that harden your heart to your need for God's transformative effect. When we hear the language of the wolf shall lie down with the lamb, we think, well, that's quite pleasant and that's quite wonderful that God's able to convert hardened sinners, yet that really isn't me. I'm more like a lamb who just is a little bit dirty and I need a little bit cleaned off. The point of showing the greatness of Christ is that you would be fully convinced of his power. And you may be fully convinced of his power, but are you fully convinced of your need for him? Are you fully convinced of your need for him? Are you fully convinced of the goodness of his reign? Not only seeing it as something possible and actual and happening now, are you understanding your deep need for his reign to be established in your heart? Brothers and sisters, those who are new in Christ cannot retain sin in their lives. So many times Christians, 
those who profess faith in Christ, are okay with and make peace with and are comfortable with harboring these snakes that are talked about here. They harbor them in their own lives and they make peace with the enemy. You must come to Christ with total reckless abandon. You must come to Christ treasuring him as the greatest treasure, holding on to nothing and wishing that nothing would remain in you that he wishes to burn out with his fire. Father, we ask you that you would give to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. We pray, God, that you would do what only you can do, that you would convert those who are still at war with you. We thank you for your gospel that says that while we were still at enmity with you, that you were reconciling the world to yourself through your son. God, I ask that you would, by your spirit, transform us, that we would become a people who not only love you and are loved by you, but that we would become a people who allow your reign to take full effect in our hearts, in our lives. God, as we approach Christmas, we ask you not only to enable us to to worship and to take joy in and delight in and thank you for the sending of your son, but that we would also see our deep need for his coming and our tragic state should he not have come. Even so, Lord, we thank you for the grace of the gospel. We pray that it would anoint and transform every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Let's join together in prayer. Almighty God, with axe and winnowing fork, you clear a holy space where hurt and destruction have no part, and a little child holds sway. Clear our lives of hatred and despair, sow seeds of joy, peace, and repentance, that shoots of hope may spring forth, and we may live in harmony with one another. Amen. Psalm 72, verses 1 through 19. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. 
Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen.